When I was an army chaplain, my soldiers asked me all kinds of questions about God, life, relationships, the Bible, and I answered them as best I could. They also called me Padre. Welcome to the Dear Padre podcast. I'm glad you're here. I hope something you hear today encourages you. Of Moraseth in the days of King Yotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah of Judah which he saw concerning Samaria and Jerusalem. Hear you peoples, all of you listen, O earth, all that is in it, and let the Lord God be witness against you, the Lord from his holy temple. For lo, the Lord is coming out of his place and will come down and tread upon the high places of the earth. Then the mountains will melt under him and the valleys will burst open like wax near the fire like waters poured down a steep place. All this for the transgression of Jacob and for the sins of the house of Israel. What is the transgression of Jacob? Is it not Samaria? And what is the high place of Judah? Is it not Jerusalem? Therefore, I will make Samaria a heap in the open country, a place for planting vineyards. I will pour down her stones in the valley and uncover her foundations. All her images, all her images shall be beaten to pieces. All her wages shall be burned with fire, and all her idols I will lay waste. For as the wages of a prostitute she gathered them, and as the wages of a prostitute they shall again be used. For this I will lament and wail. I will go barefoot and naked. I will make lamentation like the jackals and mourning like the ostriches. For her wound is incurable. It has come to Judah. It has reached to the gate of the people to Jerusalem. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you for that reading, Barbara. Thank you for that reading, Barbara. And a fitting reading for the Feast of St. Francis, who found himself among the ruins of the church, the church at the time he was born and the time he lived was in disarray, as it always has been and probably always will be. There were all sorts of things happening in the world of the church of Francis's day that we would be shocked at. But overall, there was a real striving for greatness in the church and pomp and wealth. The Crusades that had been fought uh, for the last hundreds of years were becoming less successful as the Muslim world was becoming more unified. Most of the successes of the Crusades that happened before Francis was born and during his lifetime were because of Muslim disunity, which happened as kingdoms and caliphates uh, split and ruptured and restarted as all kingdoms do. And so the gains, military gains that had happened during that time were really part of that uh, disunity in the Muslim world. Um, And certainly the Christian world at that time was extremely disunified as well. By the time Francis comes along, um, there, there has been very little success militarily in the crusading movement. And this was the obsession of Europe at the time. Wealth, war, and a neglect of those who 
were crushed under the weight of all these things. In these oppressive systems, it is the people at the bottom that exhibit the symptoms, most notably. And Francis was not among them. He was not born into these, this class of people. He was born into the upper, wealthier class of people. As I said on Sunday, he was named for his father's business venture that was successful in France. And he um, lived a life of revelry, happiness, the pursuit of happiness as a young man, and then um, went off to serve in the military. He was severely traumatized by his capture and imprisonment. Um, And we know this from the symptoms he exhibited after he came out of that experience. Um, Living almost as a homeless person we would describe today, not even really begging for food, um, just subsisting on what garbage he could eat. Um, He finds himself in the ruins of a church building. Uh, We kind of think that Europe is fixed in its place, um, that nothing ever changes, and yet every place changes. And the church that he found himself in, among the ruins, this collapsed church, was one that had been a thriving mine mining town at one point where lots of people had lived and worked and this church had served them. But the mine had closed or whatever industry had been there closed and people had moved away and the church was abandoned. And it is there that Jesus called him to rebuild his church. And so by borrowing and begging for stones from other people, he started to build that with his hands, living among the ruins. He, um, during this time of real suffering and deprivation, he got rid of his armor, his arms and armor, and um, sold them and gave the money away. He cared for lepers who lived on the outskirts of these towns and villages um, in, during this time. He found himself most comfortable among the poor and those at the bottom of this crushing structure of society that he had been privileged to be at the top of for most of his life. When his parents tried to bring him back to a life of ease and prosperity, he renounced that as well, standing, taking off his clothes and standing naked in the streets. There are many instances of him being naked in his stories of his life. Um, similar to the way the prophet Micah describes what he will do as a prophet, that the nakedness of the prophet is the the part of the message that he does not have anything, that um, he is not subject to the needs and consumerism of his time. Uh, There's that story. There's another one where um, where he asks one of his friars, he, he, was never, he never tried to be in charge of his movement. Um, he would always appoint someone else to be in charge. But then when he didn't like their decisions, he would kind of assert his authority again, um, loudly many times. Um, and he had directed one of his guys to go and preach in a village kind of far away, which required a long walk. And this guy didn't want to go. He complained. So... Uh, Francis knew that there would be nobody there to preach if he didn't go. So he um, said that you will go 
and I will make you go and I'll go with you. And, um, and because you've complained about the hardship, I want you to preach naked, um, maybe in a loincloth. I'm not sure. Um, and so the guy does. And then Francis feels bad. So he takes his habit off too and stands there with him. Um, strange stories that Micah the prophet seems to point to as a, a sign of this prophetic movement. He was never ordained as a priest. Many see him as a clergy person, but he won um, or he petitioned the Pope um, as in the early part of his ministry of rebuilding the church and caring for lepers, which was not organized in any way. It was just him doing it. And a few people had joined him at this time. But they presented themselves in Rome to be penitents, professional penitents, or I'm not sure that's the right word for it, but, but the, uh, to be a penitent was to um, live a life of simplicity alone many times, but serving others, um, doing what you could do to make the world a better place after you had extracted and exploited other people. The, the role of penitence in this medieval world was a, was a big one. And Francis becomes part of this lower order of what we might call clergy today of penitence. Um, and that offers him protection because as a reformer, as someone who constantly preaches and denounces the powers of this world and the riches of the church, he was very much at risk for being executed or imprisoned or other penalties put upon him as so many reformers were at that time. But because of this status as a penitent, there is some evidence that he becomes a deacon at some point, um, but not a priest. That is very clear in his life and ministry, that his authority and power comes not from any office that he holds, but from his service um, to the least of these. His um, He does this thing, uh, which we might look askance at today as modern Christians. Um, he goes to the church. His devotion to the Eucharist is obsessive, we might say, today. Um, but he is obsessed with the Eucharist. And even though he is not a priest, um, he is not performing this function in his life and ministry. He seeks it out at any opportunity. He finds priests just off the street that he doesn't know and kisses their hands because they offer the Eucharist. He goes um, into a church and does something that lots of medieval people did. He takes the gospel book. And I'm not sure how they would do this because I've never seen a movie of it, or I don't know if it's described in the kind of detail that you could know exactly what they do. But there was a practice to open the gospel book three times, um, just randomly, and see what it said. And that would be your word from Jesus to you, specifically. Um, and he does this. And one of the verses is, sell all you have, give to the poor, and you'll have treasure in heaven. And so that becomes his um, marrying to Lady Poverty, where he then finds this joy in that. Um, he's famous. And the last scene of, of like Micah said, the, the naked prophet, he, on his, as he's dying, he gives away his cloak uh, to someone who needed some clothes. And they have to like scurry around and find another one for him. But he was constantly doing this, um, constantly giving away his clothes, because that's really all he had um, to people that were in need. But we can see um, some scenes from his life that really um, speak to the kind of 
Christian he was, uh, he was a peacemaker. There's a story about him um, going to preach in a village. There's that notion that he never preached, like preached the gospel everywhere and sometimes used words. That's not anything he ever said as far as I've read, um, although that quote is attributed to him quite often. Um, The time he was going through a village and some soldiers, young soldiers were riding through very quickly and dangerously and he stopped them in the street and yelled at them to stop um, doing that, scaring people. Um, and then there's another scene from the Sixth Crusade where he goes to Egypt. There is a stalemate, a siege happening, and he goes to the Crusader camp there. Um, his intention is to convert the Sultan of Egypt, the Muslim Sultan of Egypt, to Christianity and thus ending the Crusade. But he goes to the military camp first and has what we might call a psychotic break, um, as he did many times throughout his life, or nervous breakdown, or um, there's lots of, you know, it's hard to diagnose people retroactively, and I certainly don't try to do that. Um, But, or maybe PTSD episode where he loudly preaches against violence and the military there in that military camp. They kind of have to confine him um, and, you know, deal with him and try to put him and calm him down and um, get him off the streets, so to speak. There's a lot of um, anger towards him. And then he somehow convinces them that he will cross the enemy lines. And because he is so in, in such a state of um, anger and really holy anger um, towards this military operation, they let him. And the enemy on the other side of the picket lines and siege works allow him to come in and they don't kill him because he seems to be like them, a holy fool, that holy fools were revered in Islam at that time. And um, they bring him in. And we see here a really key point to Muslim-Christian relations. Um, Normally, the other orders of monks that would try to evangelize Muslims throughout the medieval world, um, they would approach it in a couple ways, similar to the way Thomas Aquinas does. Um, that, um, well, not the not that the way Thomas Aquinas does, but um, others would try to denounce the character of Muhammad. That was sort of their approach: is to take Muhammad's life and pick it apart, including his what we would call awful and abusive marriages to teenagers and younger girls um, and sort of denounce him on that level and say, this is wicked. He's wicked. How can you trust a prophet um, who did wicked things and killed people and killed, you know, all sorts of people? And that seems to be the approach even today for many people to share the good news of Jesus with our with Muslim people. Francis never does that when he talks to the sultan. He starts with the person of Jesus, how wonderful Jesus is, how wonderful Jesus has been to him, how Jesus lived as a person of peace on this earth, and how he offered his life as a sacrifice for the whole world. And that Eucharistic devotion that Francis expresses there in that sultan's courtroom wins the day, and the sultan is not offended by him and doesn't get angry at him for um, preaching about Jesus, because he doesn't start with that ad hominem 
attack against Muhammad, which every Christian at the time seemed to want to do. Um, and that offers some really profound lessons for us today when we talk about our faith journeys with people that don't share them. Um, you know, we can always talk about what's happened to us. We can always talk about what gives our life meaning. Always talk about what joy we have knowing that we are loved by God through Jesus Christ. And that should be this place we start with any discussion with someone of another faith or just another person that doesn't really care about Christianity that much, or we don't think they do. Um, to share our own story is what Francis does and shows us how to do that. And Franciscans then became um, often better ambassadors for Christianity around the world than some of their contemporaries because they, um, because they did not start with an attack. Um, they started with their love. And the sultan, of course, as Francis asked him to become a Christian, the, the sultan declines, but very graciously sends him back to his own people, um, which was very rare at that time in the middle of a war to do. But those are the stories of St. Francis that resonate with me. Um, his, his profound um, struggle with living, his profound trauma, um, but his profound love for all humanity and for the creatures that inhabit his world. The wolf of Gubbio, that wolf, brother wolf, that he speaks to so gently, um, calling for him that there is plenty to eat. You don't have to eat people. You don't have to scare people. Um, there's plenty for all. Um, speaks to the deeper reconciliation that he embodied as a Christian in his time and place. And that's something we can do too on his feast day, to embody the reconciliation that God has given us in Jesus Christ whether it's with the wolf, whether it's with the, the birds that we preach to, or whether it's with real people. I think it's a lot easier to, to, um, to love animals sometimes than people. Uh, and yet we are creatures of God as well, worthy of love and deserving of patience and love in so many ways. I know for, for me, I shared a little bit on Sunday, but um, I did not have a pet till I was about 45, and I regret that decision a lot. Uh, a lot of reasons why I didn't. But I know coming home from Iraq and being severely um, affected by that experience, that would have really helped me um, a lot. And our, the pets and animals in our life are not judgmental. They love us. They care about us. They listen. They don't um, do all the things that other people seem to do to us, especially when we're in a vulnerable state. And we ought to be more like them um, than, than really um, any other example of love. They are examples of that love. And I know you all know that firsthand. And um, Francis's life witnesses to that. And I think the popularity of um, the popularity of the pet blessings at this time of year witnesses to that deep need for that kind of love in this world that um, we have seen and know. Um, it's easy to sort of say that's a, the wrong emphasis of Francis's life, that he um, was all about poverty and about preaching and about teaching and those sorts of things. But um, ultimately, um, I do think it fits really well. And it fits our moment too in time where we are, as people, questioning, is there anybody good? Are any people good? Are any of our leaders good? Um, can we really trust anybody? And we certainly can um, say that about our pets, that they are simple in their natures. And they get into little squabbles and things, but ultimately they're, they just want to love and be loved. Um, 
and that is something I've, I've learned from Francis as well. Francis was not alone. He had a community of people that shared his values and beliefs, most notably St. Clair, who has her own feast day, who cared for him as a severely traumatized veteran and, and did so much to expand the work that he had started beyond, well beyond the limits of his own abilities. Um, there's a prayer attributed to him, Lord, make us instruments of your peace. That was probably not written by Francis, but he definitely influenced it um, in many ways. Francis did not read or write, as we, far as we know. He did compose a couple canticles, the Canticle to the Sun, which a version of that is in our 1982 hymnal, number 406, um, Canticle to the Sun. But um, he, he didn't read or write, really. I mean, he may have been able to write, but he doesn't really do a lot of that. He doesn't do a lot of reading, other than that flipping of the gospel book. But one thing he did do, which is kind of weird, but it's very much Francis, was he collected scraps of old Bibles and gospel books, just scraps of them, a little torn up, you know, disintegrated um, parts of the Bible, and especially the gospels that he venerated and prayed over, and they blessed his life in that way. And I really think his mystical devotion to the to that um, kind of spirituality is still a witness for us today. When we do Stations of the Cross, um, that is Francis. He, he invented that to help people um, walk the Via Dolorosa from Jerusalem, wherever they were, knowing that the pilgrimage to Jerusalem was impossible or extremely dangerous. He tried to make Christianity um, accessible to the people of his time, which is still... Um, still something we ought to do today as church planters like Francis. Franciscans, followers of Francis and Jesus, came to Texas. Um, they planted missions in eastern Texas near Nacogdoches. Um, and then when the French uh, territories were expanded, they moved west, and some of them stayed right down the road in Austin, Texas, at, at Barton Springs for almost a year. These Franciscans were, I believe, the gray friars. They would have worn gray robes, not the brown that you normally see. Um, and they, they said when they got to Texas that um, they were called here by the visions of a blue lady that appeared to come out of the mountains and talk to the natives and tell them to go to New Mexico and invite the Franciscans to Texas. And so they did. Um, when the Franciscans got here, they said, the natives are Franciscans. This is a whole place where Franciscans live because they dressed very similar and had few possessions. The Native Americans who lived in this part of Texas um, at that time, the, the early 18th century, um, long before there were white Texans here, uh, the Native peoples um, had very much a subsistence uh, kind of living. They were not um, prosperous economically the way that many of the Eastern, Northeastern tribes uh, were at that time and confederations were. Um, and so the Franciscans recognized that. They lived among the people. They built a chapel and a sacristy um, and everywhere they went and they built a garden and they um, brought European gardening practices, which were much more sustainable and stable um, to this part of the world and tried to share those techniques with their brothers and sisters that they met. Um, there was some that converted to Christianity, but most didn't. Um, but the Franciscans lived in solidarity with them. 
<clears throat> there are stories of battles being fought, raids um, being fought against the native peoples that the Franciscans live among, and stories of Franciscans going out to the to the battlefield and grabbing uh, wounded people and pulling them back to their own lines and trying to help them and heal them and and save their lives. Um, the tensions from the the Spanish uh, imperial government eventually led to lots of hostility between the native peoples and the Spanish government here in Texas. And the Franciscans tried to mediate a lot of that, but they had very little political power to change much of that. But we know from their letters that they were constantly telling the Spanish government not to send soldiers, not to send soldiers, as they tended to create a lot more problems than they solved. Um, and so we see that tension here in Texas today, even um, the tension between how do we solve our struggles and problems? Um, and maybe we need more France, Franciscans to do that kind of work, to, sh to witness to the solidarity with people that are poor, um, to live among them and with them. Most high, omnipotent, good Lord, grant your people grace to renounce gladly the vanities of this world, that following the way of blessed Francis, we may, for love of you, delight in your whole creation with perfectness of joy. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Suffrages be. Save your people, Lord, and bless your inheritance. Govern and uphold them now and always. Day by day we bless you. We praise your name forever. Lord, keep us from all sin today. Have mercy on us, Lord, have mercy. Lord, show us your love and mercy, for we put our trust in you. And you, Lord, is our hope, and we shall never hope in vain. Pray a colic for mission. On 100. O God, you've made of one blood all the peoples of the earth, and sent your blessed Son to preach peace to those who are far off and those who are near. Grant the people everywhere may seek after you and find you. Bring the nations into your fold. Pour out your Spirit upon all flesh, and hasten the coming of your kingdom through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen.